Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Welcome back to Life's a Beach. This is Hoppo and I'm back in the beach shack. This week I bring you the second part of our amazing chat with Rosie Waterland and also lifeguard Yatesy joins us in the beach shack telling you what not to do on New Year's Eve. So strap in guys and we'll jump straight into the second part of Rosie's chat. I'm here with Rosie. Last week we discussed her early fame writing Bachelor recaps for Mamma Mia, and as well as her family life. Rosie, you were telling me while growing up you went to numerous schools and boarding schools. Yeah, I did, yeah. Now, how was that? Was that good or bad when you ended up you know, out of foster care and then into yeah. a boarding school? Was that a good thing <laughs> or a bad thing? <laughs> that was my last three years of school. Um, my uncle stepped in and he's quite wealthy, so he sent me to a very snooty private boarding school on the North Shore. (laughs) And I was excited to go there because I thought it was going to be this, you know, life-changing opportunity for me, which in many senses it was, but also I was ridiculously out of place. I mean, I'd gone to just the worst of the worst public schools. I'd, you know, spent time living out West and, and living in foster care and scraping by. And I went from, you know, schools that didn't have enough chairs in classrooms to a school with an aquatic centre and a TV studio. And and so it was a massive cultural shift that I don't think I was prepared for. And I was quite badly bullied at that school. I think just because a lot of the kids that grow up in those very rich privileged bubbles just often don't see anything outside of their immediate kind of universe. And so I was different and they didn't quite know how to deal with me and I didn't quite know how to deal with them. But it certainly opened my eyes to the potential there is to to do well in the world. If you are given the best possible opportunities, the potential you have to just go far by taking advantage of those. So it was good in that sense, but oh gosh, I got bullied pretty badly. <laughs> no, I can understand that. I mean, I, I, growing up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, which is quite unique with that, what you're talking yeah. about with schools and you get that in, in the eastern suburbs, you get that yeah. where people think that they're bigger and better than anyone else and they don't accept others in because you're a bit different or you come from a different mm. part of the world and, and that's something that's you know, still around at the, today. Oh, big time. I mean, especially in Sydney, I find um, one of the first questions, and it's always private school kids who ask, one of the first questions when they meet you is, oh, what school did you go to? What school did you go to? Because that's <laughs> just such an important thing to them. It's such a weird kind of, it, yeah. it's almost like it's imprinted on their identity. So they think it has something to do with yours. And it's a strange little world, that kind of culture. Funny you said that because a couple of the young guys that we've got, you know, they're sort of 20 to 22. Mm. They were saying they're going out and, and trying to chat up girls yeah. and, and, and doing their best and that as, as young blokes do. They were saying that same thing around our way. They asked, what school did you go to? What job are you doing? Yeah. And as soon as they say, 
what job they're doing, like a lifeguard, and then they, they basically just walk away. <laughs> they don't even want to talk to them. So it, it, it all based, they could be the best blokes in the world, yeah. but because of what school they went to. Yeah. You know, but then you can get an, on the other side of it, you get someone that's gone to the private school and, and doing these fantastic jo- so-called jobs you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And they could be the, the, the biggest arsehole in the history of the world. Oh, they and they usually are, <laughs> yeah, if we're being right. honest. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to agree with you then. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I, I was going to bring up, you, you're doing your podcast and mm-hmm. I suppose you, you joke a lot about your past and, and even though it's traumatic, you, you, you make sort of fun of it all. Yeah. Is that something that... Like talking about your life and making it making it comedy, does it still though? Every time you do that, does it take a, a piece of you inside die at all? Is it mm. hard to talk about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so I find the lines quite blurry a lot of the time. Actually, humor has certainly been a way, and comedy has always been a way for me to deal with this stuff. It's also been a way for me to walk through it and sift through it all now that I'm older and I'm no longer stuck in that traumatic place. Comedy helps. It's kind of that whole concept of if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So you might as well laugh. But yes, you know, I've written two memoirs about my life. I've done stand-up shows about my life. I did a podcast with my mum where I went back through my book and let her dispute a lot of what I wrote about my life. And <laughs> and at the end of the day, there are some days where I think, is this worth it? Like, I'm so sick of mining my trauma for entertainment. Like, maybe, yeah. like, and I think that's why now, coming up on my mid-30s, I'm pivoting more towards fiction and I'm definitely... Yeah talking and writing a lot less about myself and about my past. I think, like, I'm glad that I did it. I certainly am. It was, I think, pretty um, therapeutic for me to get a lot of it down in writing and to sort of take ownership of my story and my childhood. and, And to be able to laugh at it is a hugely powerful thing. There's certainly a reason I'm now starting to make up stories and and go into fiction yeah. because it's actually quite um, profound what you said. A little bit of you does die every time you make fun of yourself about that kind of stuff and I don't think it's sustainable to do it forever. Yeah. Yeah. When you mentioned about your, your mum sort of, I don't know, did you just criticised or wonder, did you change anything that you did write or you just went with what you <laughs> wanted to write? even though whatever your your mum disagree with? Well, I mean, when I was writing the book, gosh, I was 27 then, She her alcoholism was so bad that we thought she probably didn't have long to live and I assumed even if she did live, she would certainly never be in a mental capacity where she could read a book. So that kind of gave me this buffer where I thought, oh, well, I'm safe because she'll never read it. So I can just say it the way (laughs) I remember it and not worry about hurting her feelings. But about a year after the book came out, she got sober. And of course, the first thing she did was read the bloody book. Yeah, she had a lot of thoughts. She had a lot of complaints. She had a lot of um, a lot to say. And so that's why I said to her, well, look, I think that everything I wrote is true. Like I sat down and wrote things exactly the way I remember them. 
And if you're saying that I've remembered things wrong or if, if I've gotten the story wrong, then let's sit down and talk about it. And, of course, the entertainer in me was like, let's do a podcast. So yeah. that's when we did the podcast, Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie, where we just sat there and went through each chapter and I let her say, that's not true. And I'd say, well, how do you know you were drunk? And she'd say, well, how do you know you were five? And <laughs> we we never ended up agreeing. We, we never ended up getting to a place where you know, I said that her version was true and she said that mine was, but I think that's also the nature of memories is everybody kind of remembers things in their own way. And yeah, but no, I certainly didn't adjust the book to um, appease (laughs) her because if I did, she wouldn't have hated it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever fall into that? Like you saw your parents as, as, you know, on on drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Was there a time that you got that low that, you fell into that or did you just say, I've seen that what it does to people mm. and that turned you to the opposite way? Like I never turned away from alcohol completely or anything, but I'd say addiction's never been a problem to me, but there was one time in my life after my best friend died, um, Antonio, when I was 30. And I certainly started using alcohol then to self-medicate, I think. Like that was the first time in my life that I really started approaching my relationship to alcohol in a really unhealthy way. And it took, I'd say about a year, maybe 18 months after he died for me to sort of step back and go, oh, this isn't, this isn't a healthy way of dealing with this. And I should be, you know, talking about this in my therapy and I should be approaching this better. So it was certainly the first time in my life where I realized, wow, it's, it's easy to fall into this. It's much easier to fall into this than what I thought. And it, it gave me a bit more empathy for my parents, particularly my mother, because that was probably the most emotionally difficult time in my life. And I saw then, oh, wow, alcohol just makes that feeling go away. Like that just everything goes numb when you get a bit pissed. Yeah. And yeah. I was, you know, I think because I'm not an addict, I'm not an alcoholic, I was able to see that I was doing that and then stop. Whereas my mum was never able to stop. And that's kind of the nature of addiction, I guess. But that was the one time when I, I I think as kids, particularly, you never understand, like I would always look at my mum and go, well, just stop drinking. I don't get it. Just stop. I don't get it. Like, why don't you just stop? And I never understood why she couldn't. And so in that period of time after my best friend, Tony died, that was the first time I was like, oh, okay. I sort of understand. I have a bit more of an understanding now for that. Yeah, I understand what you mean. I've got friends as well, the same sort of situation that um, you sort of, because I've never been in, I mean, I, I, I have a drink, I have my big nights mm. here and there, and but I've never been addicted to something where I just, I can't stop at all. Yeah. But, and I've seen people that have, and I've understood now that, yeah, you can get into that rut and, and because of the pain you're trying to get rid of, it just yeah. does just, just block it all out. And I mean, I had a bit of a bad run in, in my life as well, but... And you hit the drink because you want to forget things. But yes. I'm just lucky enough that I could come through and, and, and stop doing that. But I can see that so many people can get into that rhythm and there's no way out of it. Yeah, same. I mean, that was the same as me. I sort of, after that very rough 18 months where I I 
pulled myself out of it and and got a lot better and and started just approaching the situation in a much like and approaching my grief in a much healthier way yeah I kept looking at my mum going oh wow like I wish you had been able to do this because your life would have been a lot different but you know that I guess the nature of alcoholism and addiction is she was she started one day and was never able to stop to this day she still can't stop right so mm-hmm. she's still even though she went off it she's still every now and again falls back into that uh yeah i mean she's in a bit of a rhythm now where she'll be sober for i don't know two three four months sometimes six months and then she'll fall back into it you know i've been living with an alcoholic parent you know for 34 years now so i'm kind of in a place where i get it will always be a problem for her, which upsets fans as well, like especially fans of the podcast who listened to her and came to really um, admire her and admire her strength at getting through all her struggles and adversities and stuff. And they always say to me, so she's sober, right? Your mum's still sober. And I just go, oh, like that's not how addiction works. (laughs) Like sometimes she is, sometimes she isn't. So, and I think it'll always be that way. Yeah, but I think it's great that you admit that though because a lot of people i've seen then say no yeah they're sober they're sober they're not and i think a lot of people think it's oh once they're sober it's an easy ride mm. it, it's not it's it's still a tough roller coaster ride no matter yeah you know whether you're sober or not sober it's a constant battle to try and stay sober and, and on the, the straight and narrow well i think that's why they say you know you're not just an addict when you're using you're an addict always so even if you're sober you're yeah. still an addict and it's still very easy for you to fall back into that i think and that's what that's how it goes with my mum. you know she has good days and bad days and she's much nicer and easier to deal with on her good days but you know i have yep. rules like i I don't answer the phone from if it's her after 5 p.m. because that's generally when she's been drinking. And, you know, if I yeah. know that she's on a bit of a bender, I cut off contact for a while because although I'm very supportive of her and supportive of, of her trying to deal with her mental health, I still have to deal with the reality that she was and can sometimes still be an abusive parent. So I have to take care of myself in that respect and my sisters as well. You know, it's just an ongoing lifelong thing. But if, if I want to have any sense of a relationship with her, which I do because she's my mom, I have to sort of navigate the complications of that. I think, look, I respect what you do and it's a fantastic yeah, you know, you, you've battling your own demons as well and, and putting it out there on your podcasts and, and your writing. And, mm. you know, I, I'm very proud of what you're doing. So it's Aww. a great job. And Thank you. It, it's been a, uh, it's feels, been a great, uh, great like, having you on. Feels like a great Aussie dad saying, well done, Rosie. I'm proud of you. <laughs> That's really nice. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> That's all good. Yeah, you know, it's been fantastic having you on, having a chat and... Uh, and telling your story and, and let's hope we can, you know, if we can save one person. that's a, Yeah, that's a no, that's actually true. Yeah, and I'm glad, I'm so glad to have been on and, um, yeah, keep doing this. This has been a really good chat and I think this is, you know, the kind of podcast and conversations that could make a huge difference for people to hear, particularly from someone like yourself. It feels, I think, to a lot of people probably a little unexpected that you're being so open yeah. emotionally and mentally about this stuff and, and that's a big deal. Don't underestimate how big a deal that is. So I'm so glad to have been a part of it. No, thanks a lot. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. 
What an amazing woman Rosie is. Track her down on Instagram at Rosie Waterland and on Facebook at Rosie Waterland Online. Now we're going to do a dive into the beach shack with Yatesy. He's retired from lifeguarding now, but was a stalwart for 16 years on the team with me. Let's hear from Yatesy what not to do when you have a party at your house. Hey Yatesy, mate, good to have you in. Hoppo, thanks for having me. I was talking about actually the other day on the on the radio about New Year's Eve, and it reminded me of uh, a story with you <laughs> when you injured yourself. Can you uh, oh, tell us a little bit what happened? Well, I lived across the road from the golf course where everyone sort of mingled to watch the fireworks. You could see the fireworks from the golf course in North Bondi. I, I lived on the top floor, and I, know, I was locked out or something. I think I was playing a party trick. I'd climb up the side of the building. Well, just to, to let everyone know that, that doesn't know that uh, there is a party trick Yates used to do at his house. You'll get to know what this is when he uh, works uh, yeah. through this story. So I used to climb up the front of the building, crawl across the roof. It was a flat roof and then jump off the roof onto my balcony and surprise everyone, you know, and like, oh, where did you come from? So I'd done it earlier that night. I thought I'd do it again. So up I went and climbed up. I'd done it a hundred times before and then got to the top so it was about, it was three stories up on the roof and the thing that I usually grabbed to pull my, wasn't there. So when I went to, when I went to grab it and pull myself up, I just grabbed air and then, and then fell back. I fell about seven metres and I fell on my feet, which was, and it was grass, it wasn't concrete. So it was, it was grass and I fell on my feet and the doctors said that my, my knees probably would have hit the ground with my feet being on the ground right so you know it blew out all my muscles and tendons and broke both ankles <laughs> <laughs> but you're lucky that there's an incline there there's an incline so you've hit and then gone forward whereas yeah. if it was flat potentially could have driven all everything back oh, through your pelvis and, and and mate when i when i got to the hospital they I had to tell them a few times what i'd done so all these scenarios came out a guy that had happened to not long ago fell half of my height and he'd actually fallen on his feet and like you said he pushed everything up so his pelvis his hips everything went up and completely like ruined him so yeah to say i was lucky was a, a major understatement but my injuries were pretty bad but could have been yeah, it could have been way a worse, lot worse yeah the other extraordinary thing is when someone injures themselves that bad You'd think you'd call an ambulance and go straight to hospital, wouldn't you? But uh, what, what well, did you decide to do? Mate, it happened at 10 past 12 on New Year's Eve. Or New Year's Day, it would have been, right? So, And there was a party at my house. So the people in the golf course actually carried me up the stairs and put me on my lounge and I put my feet up. And everyone was very hospitable at my house because I couldn't walk. You know, they will bring me over beers and coming and talking to me because I couldn't go to them. And... <laughs> Uh, eventually went to hospital. I think on, I think I went on the third. I think, <laughs> I, think I took, I took, I rang up a mate and I, I knew, I knew something was wrong, but I, I, I was getting my story straight from my mum and my in-laws and that because I couldn't tell them I fell off the yeah, yeah. roof because I was, mind you, I was getting married in about f f six weeks from that. Yeah. So you know, I didn't 
I had to and tell you, you still had to have a story for me as well because I was up there that night on the, on the part and you disappeared, never yeah. saw you come back. And I thought, oh, you've gone off wherever and I've gone home. So at this stage, you're still on your days off, I think. Yeah. So you're probably due to come back on, you're saying the third, but you're probably due back to work on the fourth. Yeah. So you're trying to work out what you're going to work. It was well, so well, remember I used to go to the cricket. So That's right. God love you. Used to give That's me, right. You had the time you, off. You give me the week off. To go to the cricket from the second to the sixth or whatever. So I had that time off. So here I am thinking you've gone to the cricket. <laughs> I had to come up with some, with some sort of – at that stage, I, I I knew what my injuries were and how long I was, had to have off. So I was coming up with some sort of harebrained white lie to, <laughs> to tell you what had happened. So, yeah, I'll let you know, I think, halfway through. And then I didn't come back until – March? Yeah, oh, mate, you were off for a yeah, good three months. Yeah. I've been pushed in towards the end of the <laughs> yeah. year. And I was actually pushing to come back I, I, because I was, I was going mad. And I, was, and I learned how to walk again, yeah. if that's how you'd say. Um, I did walk down the aisle, but I was, I was dosed up. Yep. Um, well, that's right. Anyone and, concerned out there yeah. that he wasn't going to make his wedding, <laughs> he did make the wedding and he did actually walk down. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a weird way, but yeah, he did uh, walk down. And I, yeah, I was at, at the end of my wedding. I had to actually cut my, I had boots. On, I had to cut my boots off because the, the swelling was so Sorry. bad. <laughs> but that whole thing, that, I mean, I had to come up with an, an elaborate web of lies to <laughs> tell my mum and, and tell my mother-in-law. You know, because it was so close to the wedding and. Yeah. And of course, after the wedding, I could tell them, yeah, but yeah. not before. Before the wedding. Well, what did you come up with to tell them beforehand? Well, I I told them that I was around at Ben Buckler, and I'd fallen off the cliff. Yeah. Right. But when I rang Jeff, who's my father-in-law, to come pick us up to take us to the hospital, he he put two and two together, and he said, <laughs> "Well, if I have to pick you up and put you in the car, how did you get home?" From Mermaid, <laughs> from Mermaid Rock. And I was like, and I was in so much pain. I said, "Look." This is what happened. I fell off the roof, but don't tell Lucy. <laughs> we'll tell her what happened after the because I just couldn't. I just couldn't have yeah, the yeah. group. So, and then like my mum said, you know, Lyle's got to have a good memory, so I had to remember what we did, and it started to unwind about a week before the wedding, and it, it, and the, bond, the Bondi grapevine. I yeah. couldn't keep it from yeah. her because my mother-in-law's sister works with one of my mates' mum right. in Hall Street. Yeah. So she told him, and then. It got it got back, so it all got back. Yeah, it got back. So it well, was... I think that the, the chain it got back to me too before you rang. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah, fully. You would have. We were just up the road. Yeah, I mean, I'm back walking now, and not a hundred percent. That happened. That was three, three, three few years, three, three four years ago. years ago. Yeah, three years. Well, we should know because you got married then. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put me on the spot. Three, three. 2007, there you go. 20th, 17th of February, I got married. Very good. So, um, yeah, that was quite an interesting. I missed a week of cricket. Yep. And I was bumming about that because Warner, I remember, got 100 before lunch and they were playing Pakistan. And I was, I remember, right. I was in the hospital. Had to watch on TV. Just looking at it, just going, oh. I was, I was full of the grouse, though. So, you know, I was like, <laughs> as you do. As I was, yeah. As All I right. do. Uh, thanks, Yoti. Uh, Great story and, and great to have you in here. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Hopper. Cheers. Bye, mate. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. I'll be back in the shack with Eden Daily next episode. Stay safe 
and swim between the flags. Looking forward to hearing from you on social media.